morning, everybody. Switch things up a little bit today. I'm going to preach here earlier in the service. We're going to sing more toward the end of the service. I hope that's all right with you. If it's not, I don't know what to tell you. That's what we're doing. Um, when, when we talked about this, uh, in fact, even just this morning, I told Laura that there's some danger in this because usually while I'm preaching, uh, I understand kind of what the timeline looks like. 12 o'clock is getting closer and closer all the time. Uh, when you front load the message like this, I've never been really good at math. So to, to, to say how much time I need to take during the message to leave time to sing, uh, I'm not making any guarantees today. Uh, but I'll preach the text and then we will sing. Fair enough? All right, do you have your Bible this morning? 1 Kings chapter 18 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope that you'll grab one from the pew rack in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together this morning. Last week we saw what might be the least exciting scene in the ministry of Elijah, as it's revealed in the Bible. I'm sure he had normal, ordinary days that are not revealed in the Bible, but that was a pretty normal day. I told you that my initial inclination was to skip that part in order to move on to all the action that we see at Mount Carmel. That was a bad idea for a couple of reasons. First, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable to us. Amen. Second, we learned some big lessons from that boring scene last week, which reminds us so much of our lives. Much of our life is boring, and it is important for us to be faithful to God on those boring days and not just on the spectacular days. One important application from last week had to do with the Word of God. We keep seeing in Elijah's life that, quote, the Word of the Lord came to Elijah. We keep seeing that over and over, and Elijah receives the Word of the Lord and obeys it. And my encouragement was to follow his lead in this. Follow him in this, recognizing that the word of the Lord has come to us in, in a way that would make Elijah jealous. The word of the Lord has come to us. Therefore, read it, know it, and do it. That's what we talked about last week, and I hope that you have done that this week. Secondly, we talked about the importance of serving God faithfully where we are as we are. God has given all of us different gifts, different talents, different passions, but he's designed all of that to work together for the common good and for the glory of God. So we looked at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this image of the church as a body that has all of these different body parts, all of these different members that all are working together for the good of the body. I told you, that we should use our gifts and appreciate others who use their gifts even as they are different from us. And then, by God's grace and in his providence, we had this opportunity to get signed up to do some of that stuff as we went upstairs to the job fair. I hope that you took advantage of that. I hope that you signed up for some ministry and are involved in the work that God is doing here at First Baptist Church. This week, we move from the least exciting scene in Elijah's life to the most exciting scene in Elijah's life. Arguably one of the most exciting scenes in all of the Old Testament. Now in my roadmap of this 10-week series on Elijah, I counted on getting through this scene in one week. Now after preparing to preach today, I realized that was a bad idea. We're going to need to spend multiple weeks here at Mount Carmel. So we will still do a 10-week sermon series on Elijah, it will just take 12 to 14 weeks to finish it. 
Again, that's the plan. I hope you're okay with it. The plan today, as we look at 1 Kings chapter 18, is to get a high-altitude look at the, stu- at the story. In fact, I'm going to tell you the story today. That's going to be a big part of the sermon today, is me telling you the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And then, after getting a high-altitude view, we're going we're gonna to descend a bit, and we're going to look closely at the first part of the text and see some details. Next week, we'll, we'll gain some altitude once again, and we'll see a high-altitude look in a very creative way of the story. And then we'll zoom in on some details in the middle part of the story. And then maybe the week after that, high altitude again, and then the end of the story. And so that's, that's the plan. Uh, there is so much for us to see in the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Many scholars would say that as far as Elijah's life and ministry goes, this scene that we're going to see today is the apex, the pinnacle, the climax of all of it. Everything before this is leading here, and everything that happens after this in Elijah's life is flowing from this scene. And so to say that this is critical is an understatement. And so therefore, we need to spend some time. We're not going to get in a hurry with this scene. We'll spend some extra time and look at it closely. Um, So we're going to pray together, and then I'm going to tell you the story, a story from God's Word. Uh, That story is found in 1 Kings chapter 18, and you can follow along as I tell you the story so that I don't mess it up too bad, and, uh, and you can be uh, encouraged by the story. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for time together. Uh, thank you for a time to sing and a time to study and a time to sing some more, and I pray that, um, pray that you'll be honored in all of it. I pray that you help us to engage the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, From a high altitude that will appreciate this whole scene and see it uh, as a vivid display of your greatness and your glory. That you are the one true living God. There is no no other. You alone are deserving of our worship and our praise, our obedience and our submission. There is no one else like you. Help us to see that. And help us to zoom in closely and see the dangers of idolatry in our lives and the lives around us. Help us to see the bold call to follow Jesus and no other. God, open our eyes today to be glorified as we we respond to what you have revealed to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's a story from God's word. And this is like the longest story ever. Usually when we tell stories like this, they're little short things, and this is a long one. Um, So... Last time Ahab, the evil king, and Elijah were face to face, Elijah told Ahab, it will not rain again on this land until I say it will rain again. And that was three, over three years ago from where we're going to talk about today. So for over three years, it has not rained. And now Elijah and the evil king Ahab are back face to face together with one another once again in a meeting that has been brokered by a man of God whose name was Obadiah, right? And Obadiah has set this meeting up, and when Ahab and Elijah come face to face, Ahab sets the tone of the meeting by saying to Elijah, is that you, you troublemaker, the one who has brought all of this trouble upon Israel? And Elijah's immediate response to the evil king is, I'm not the one who is causing trouble for Israel. You're the one who's caused trouble for Israel. You 
have led the people away from the Lord and to worship the Baals and follow and serve him. You are just like your father leading the people of God into idolatry and away from the Lord. And then Elijah begins to lay out a challenge. And he says to the king, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get all the people together. All of the children of Israel together, all of the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, all of the prophets that serve at the Asherah, 400 of them. I want you to get all of these people together and let's meet at Mount Carmel and there will be a challenge and there will be a showdown. And so what happens is that Ahab gets the people together gathers all of these people together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah speaks to the crowd and he says, how long will you sit on the fence? How long will you hesitate between two things? If the Lord is God, then follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. And as Elijah makes this bold declaration, the people are silent. No one says a word. And so Elijah begins to lay out the details of the challenge. He notes that he is the only prophet of God, that he is all alone, and yet there are 450 prophets of Baal who are leading the people of God into paganism, into idolatry. And he says this, he says, here's the deal, get two bulls and bring them here, and Baal Baal's guys, they'll get one bull, and I'll get another bull. And Baal's guys, they will uh, prepare the bull, and they will build an altar, and they will put the bull on the altar, but they will lay no fire on it. And I'll do the same thing. I'll prepare my bull. I'll, I'll put it on the altar, but I will build no fire on it. And the God who answers by fire, Baal, they, they, his guys will call out to Baal, and I will call out to the Lord God, and whichever God answers by fire, he will be seen to be God, the one true God. And you know what the people said at this point? That's a good idea. <laughs> they, they didn't say anything when he said, how long will you sit on the fence? But now that there's a clear challenge set, the people say, this sounds like a good idea. So Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, you first. You first, 450 of you, you pick your ox, you prepare your altar, you set it up, but you put no fire under it, and then you call on your God. So they did. They did. And once everything was set, they began to call out to Baal. They said, oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. From morning until noon, they said this, but there was no voice. There was no answer. There was no fire. So they began to leap about the altar. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I bet each one of us has a little bit different picture of what it might have looked like for these prophets of this false god, this idol, this pagan deity, for his prophets to leap about the altar. What are you picturing? I, I, there is a part of me that wants to say, stand up and do it. Like whatever this looks like, and it's some of you are shaking your heads like, no, no, no. It looks like a scene, right? They are leaping about the altar. And they do this from morning until noon. And about noon, Elijah begins to talk trash about them. Elijah says, speak up. Get louder. Maybe he can't hear you. He is a God after all. He says, oh, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe Baal's on vacation, and that's why you're getting no response from him. He says at one point, maybe he's asleep. 
Maybe Baal's asleep, and you just need to speak a little louder so you can wake him up. And then finally he says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe Baal has gone to the bathroom, and he's not available to take your call right now. Elijah just taunts them and talks this trash at about noon. And at this point, the prophets of Baal ratchet things up a bit. Because of the taunting of Elijah, they begin to ratchet things up a bit. They begin to cry out louder and louder, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. And then they take out their swords and their knives and their spears, and they begin to cut themselves. 450 guys leaping around, shouting, now begin to cut themselves as they are known to do. And blood is gushing out of them as they, as they loudly cry out, Oh, Baal, answer us. And they do this until the afternoon. And by the time evening came, there was no voice. There was no answer. There was no fire. No one paid attention to this frenzy of the prophets of Baal. And then Elijah said to the people, come close to me. Come close to me. It's my turn. And he gathered the people around. And as the people gathered around, he repaired the altar of the Lord. He took 12 stones, one stone for each of the tribes of Israel, and he built up the altar to God. He also then dug a trench around the altar. He put the wood on the altar, he prepared the ox, he placed it on top of the wood, and then in what is the most shocking move in the whole story, he says to the crowd, bring me four buckets of water. And they get him four buckets of water, and he pours the four buckets of water on top of the meat, and it drips down onto the wood and onto the rocks, four buckets He says, go back, fill them up again. The second time, he pours the four buckets of water onto everything. He says, a third time, go back and fill up the four buckets of water. And they go, and he pours it on top of everything. And at this point, everything around here is soaked, right? Dripping wet. And that trench that he dug around the altar, it is absolutely full of water. And then, just as evening came, Elijah prayed this. Look at it on the screen. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Pretty simple prayer, right? He simply says, God, work in such a way that everyone knows you are God. And immediately, fire, the fire of the Lord comes down out of heaven and consumes the meat of the sacrifice and the wood that is under the sacrifice and the rocks, the 12 stones that Abraham has set or that Elijah has set up as an altar. It even burns those up. It burns up the dust around the altar and licks up every drop of water in the trench and all the way around. That's some serious fire, is it not? Fire that burns up rocks. This is incredible. And when the people see this, they all fall on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Say that with me. The Lord, he is God. 
the Lord, he is God. And Elijah immediately says, seize the prophets of Baal. Gather them up. Don't let a single one of them escape. And Elijah then takes the prophets of Baal down to a brook and he kills them all. He kills them all. And this brook that is running dry right now because it hasn't rained in three years runs red with the blood of these pagan priests, these pagan prophets. And then, and then, Elijah says to the evil king Ahab, you better go get some dinner, king, because it's about to start raining. I hear a rainstorm coming. Elijah, after he says this to King Ahab, he goes back up on the mountain. And the the Bible says that he put his head between his knees. Like he is on his face before God, no doubt in prayer, bowed low before the Lord. I would say it's obvious that he's praying for rain, right? And he sends his servant out to look. He says, he says, go see if there's anything coming out toward the sea. And his servant goes and looks and he comes back to Elijah. He says, I don't see anything. He says, go, go look again. And he comes back and says, I don't, I don't see anything, Elijah. Seven times the servant of Elijah goes and looks to see if there's a storm coming, if there's a cloud coming. And on the seventh time he comes back and he says, I see a cloud, but it's only the size of man's hand. And it's coming our way. And Elijah says, go tell Ahab that he better get in his chariot and head back toward his palace because there's a storm coming. And if he doesn't leave now, he's going to get swamped in all of this rain. And so Ahab goes and he gets in his chariot and he heads back toward his palace. And sure enough, sure enough, the sky grows dark and a major storm comes and pours rain over all the earth. It hasn't rained in over three years, and now it begins to rain. And Ahab rides in his chariot, rides in his chariot toward his palace. And Elijah, the Bible says, girded up his loins. It's not language that we use very often. It means he put on his running shorts. You know, the little little short ones that are too short that real runners wear. He put on his running shorts. And he outran, he outran the evil king who was in his chariot to the palace because the hand of the Lord was upon him. That's a story from God's word. That's a good one, right? So I want you to be able to see this whole picture. I wish you could see it for the very first time. I wish you didn't know all of these details or how it ended, but I want you to be able to see that whole scene And let that play in your mind over the next few weeks as we look now carefully at parts of the story. Fair enough? So today we're going to spend most of our time in verses 17 to 29. Verses 17 to 29, and then we will sing. First thing I want you to notice in verses 17 to 29, the first part of this story, basically basically we're looking at the beginning of the conversation between Ahab and Elijah through through the end of the prophets of Baal cutting themselves and there's no answer, right? We're not going to get into Elijah calling out to God just yet. First thing I want you to see is that this whole thing is an underdog story, from a human perspective at least. This whole thing is set up to the advantage of Baal and his prophets. It is on their turf, 
Mount Carmel was kind of their place. It was known as their place. They get to go first in every way. As Elijah talks to them, he says, oh, you, you pick which ox. You go first. You get, to, you get to have all day if you want. Elijah gives them every benefit in the process. There are 450 of them and only one of Elijah. And they, the prophets of Baal, have the support of the palace. Every advantage is given to Baal and his prophets. But none of that matters, right? None of that matters because Elijah has the Lord. And the Lord, he is God. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31 with me. God's word says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. From a human perspective, Elijah was outmanned. He was outpowered. He was off of his home turf. None of that mattered because Elijah had the Lord on his side. If you have the Lord on your side, you're a conqueror. Even though it may seem like you're being put to death all day long, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loves us. These kind of underdog stories are amazing opportunities for God to display his power through our weakness. Therefore, we must not be intimidated. If we stand against 450 prophets of Baal who have the backing of the palace, who have home court advantage, we must not be intimidated. We must be, in, we must be confident. We must be bold. We must be courageous because the Lord, he is God. And we're certain of that. And so therefore, we have no fear. So next time you find yourself as the underdog, so to speak, remember that if you are with the Lord and the Lord is with you, you overwhelmingly conquer through him. Second thing I want you to notice is that the issue here is idolatry. From beginning to end, the issue is idolatry. This evil king Ahab has led the people away from wholehearted trust and obedience unto Yahweh and into the worship of Baal, right? When, when he comes at Elijah and says, oh, is that you, you troublemaker? Elijah's immediately res immediate response is, I'm not the troublemaker, you are, because you have led the people away from God and into idolatry, right? This whole scene, the whole problem with the rain, the whole problem with the drought, all of it is because of idolatry. And that is why Elijah gives this bold 
statement, how long will you hesitate between the two? How long will you hesitate between the two? Some of the people have been led by the king to forsake the Lord entirely. Some of the people have been led by the king to think they can worship Yahweh and Baal at the same time. And so Elijah says, how long will you hesitate between the two? It is idolatry that has caused the drought. It is idolatry that will cause Israel to struggle. It's caused Israel to struggle up to this point, and Israel will continue to struggle with idolatry throughout its history, and it's idolatry that we struggle with today. And so we need to hear this call. If the Lord is God, follow Him. Not follow Him as one of the things that you follow. Not follow Him as one of many gods that you serve. But follow Him exclusively and wholeheartedly. And let me tell you, He is God. The Lord is God. And He has proven it in a much bigger way than fire from heaven at Mount Carmel. He has proven that he is God in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. We'll get to that more in a minute. Second thing I want you to see is that the issue here is idolatry. This is a story about idolatry and the futility of serving an idol. Third thing I want you to see is this call that Elijah issues to the people is a call to total trust and total obedience to Yahweh, to the Lord, and consequently, the rejection of all idols. When Elijah says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? How long will you sit on the fence? He is saying, I'm calling you to wholehearted obedience and devotion and trust in God and the wholehearted rejection of all these so-called gods and idols in your life. You cannot have one foot in each of these worlds. And this, I believe, is the biggest application of the day for us. The challenge is simple. Choose today. Choose today who you will serve. And that is a consistent call throughout the scriptures. Like immediately some of you are thinking about Joshua chapter 24, right? This kind of language of today's the day. Who are you going to serve? And you need to decide today. Look what it says in Joshua chapter 24 starting at verse 14. It says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like we need need that today. We need to hear someone like Elijah, someone like Joshua, say to all of us, decide today who you will serve. Are you going to serve the false gods? Are you going to serve Baal? Are you going to serve the world? Are you going to serve money? Are you going to serve the United States of America? Are you going to serve your own power and prestige? Are you going to serve the Lord? And we need someone like Joshua who will say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I've decided to follow Jesus to trust in Jesus, and to serve Jesus. And I'm inviting you today, challenging you, laying it out. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to trust? Moses does the same thing in Exodus chapter 32. He does it a couple times, actually. This is just one of them. After he comes down off the mountain, having received the law of God, and encounters idolatry. 
right? They're, they're, they're worshiping a golden calf. And he confronts Aaron about it. And you remember Aaron? He's like, oh, they just, they just gave me earrings. I threw them in the fire and this thing came out. Remember that? He lays it out then. He draws a line in the sand, so to speak. Look at Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 25. It says, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, they were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. I, don't, I want to do that today. I want, I want to be that guy that says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. I'm not calling for that part of it. But I am calling for this serious. Who are you going to serve today? Are you going to go with the golden calf? Are you going to go down the path of idolatry? Or are you going to serve the Lord? Step out. Step out. Who's with the Lord? This is a challenge that we need to hear. This is a challenge, I believe, that Jesus issues multiple times in the Gospels. He comes along, the tax collector, counting money in his booth, and what does he say to him? Follow me. Follow me. You either stay here and keep doing what you're doing, or you follow me. He tells the fishermen, you'll no longer be fishers of, fishermen like this, but you will be fishers of men. And they leave their nets and follow him, right? Jesus invites these men to follow him. Not take your old life and bring it along with you, but leave it all and follow me. And if you do, great. And if you don't, there's judgment. It's, Jesus doesn't issue invitations to these men. He gives them commands that are either obeyed or disobeyed. It's not just an invitation. You want to come to my party? No, I've got something else going on. It's the decree of the king that is either obeyed or disobeyed. He tells us, take up our cross, follow him. He says, if you want to be one of my followers, you want to be one of my disciples, you take up your cross and you follow me. He tells one guy who says he wants to follow him, who then says, oh, but I can't right now because I've got to take care of this family thing at home. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Like, you come follow me. You leave it all. I'm, I'm asking, are you going to leave it all to follow me? He says at one point, if you're not for me, you're against me. He looks at Martha, grieving over the death of her brother, after he tells her about the glories of him being the resurrection and life. And he says, do you believe this? The, the, that's not a middle, you don't get a middle road there. Her answer is, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ. I guess, I guess what I want to, want to do is make this call today. To, to say to you, like Elijah says, if Baal is God, worship him. But if the Lord is God, worship him. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. The scripture is clear that God is holy, holy, holy. 
He's perfectly righteous and he's perfectly just. He cannot ignore sin. He cannot bypass sin. He must punish sin. Scripture teaches that we are sinful, sinful, sinful. We have broken God's law. We've rebelled against him. We've turned away from him. And as a consequence of our sin, we deserve the holy wrath of a holy God. We deserve condemnation, judgment, and hell. The Bible also teaches that God rescues sinners, saves sinners, and he sent his son to die for sinners. That Jesus came and lived among us a life that we could not live. He was perfectly obedient to the law of God in every possible way. And he died the death that you and I deserve. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin to his account on his shoulders as if it belonged to him. And he suffered the consequences that you and I deserve to suffer. And he died in our place. Jesus died for sinners. Because he was dead, they buried him. And on the third day, he rose again. He's victorious over sin and death and hell. And he offers us victory. He offers us life. He offers us forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. As a gift of grace that we receive by faith, by trusting in him, by depending on him, by believing in him. Not by working hard or doing good, but by depending on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do? Choose for yourself this day. Are you going to walk in dependence, in trust, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and repentance of sins? Or are you going to continue to walk in rebellion, in disobedience? Are you going to walk this narrow road that leads to life? Or are you going to continue to walk the wide road that leads to destruction? And some of you are thinking, I'm not, I'm not on either of those roads really. I'm kind of in the middle. I'm on this middle road. No. It doesn't exist. If you are not trusting in Jesus, you are rejecting Jesus. Like present tense, here and now. If you are not depending on Jesus and submitting to him as Lord of your life and all life, then you are rejecting Jesus. And I'm, call, I'm calling you today, like Elijah, like Joshua, like Moses, like Jesus, today's the day. You decide. Who are you going to follow? I want to invite you to do that as you preach the gospel this week to your friends and your neighbors. Matt and I were talking earlier this week about how we have this tendency to articulate the truths of the gospel. Like as we share the gospel with people, we have a tendency to say, this is what, who God is, this is who man is, this is what Christ has done, here's the proper response. And we just kind of leave it at that. We say it's, it's out there and we'll just leave it alone rather than what he calls drawing the net. Like pushing toward decision. I don't want to push you into a decision, but I want to tell you a decision needs to be made and invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and warn you that if you do not, hell awaits. So as you preach the gospel this week, preach it with a sense of urgency. Like Elijah, like Moses, like Joshua, like Jesus. This call from Elijah to the people is to total trust, total obedience unto the Lord. 
and total rejection of all these idols. Fourthly, and less significantly, admittedly, when we look at this first part of the story, we learn that leadership is lonely. Leadership is lonely. Just hours before the scene, Obadiah informed Elijah that he was caring for 100 of his colleagues in a cave. Remember this? In that whole exchange between Elijah and Obadiah, last week we saw that Obadiah said, I've got 100 of your brothers over in a cave and I'm giving them bread and meat from my own provisions. You're not the only one, Elijah. And yet, and yet, as Elijah speaks here in verse 22, he says to the people, I alone am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. As far as information goes, Elijah knows that he's not the only prophet of the Lord that remains. There may be others out there, but at this point, Elijah feels all alone. And I want you to hang on to that, that idea that leadership is lonely. Because as we move into chapter 19, that idea may help make sense of some of what happens there. Because as great as the story was today... I mean, this is dynamite stuff, right? Elijah called, simple prayer, God, show yourself to be God. Fire comes down, consumes everything, people on their faces. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, uh, prophets of Baal, slaughtered in the brook. Chapter 19, Elijah says, God, why don't you just kill me? Why don't you just kill me now? He is completely depressed, completely despondent. And this statement that he makes at the beginning of this whole scene helps us understand that. He says, I am alone, left a prophet of the Lord. And this is a reality with which I am familiar, more familiar than I'd like to admit most days. So because leadership is lonely, here's the application. Let's pray for leaders. Let's pray for leaders. And I'm talking about all kinds of leaders, civic leaders, government leaders, church leaders, work leaders, home leaders. It can be lonely to be the leader. And so pray for them. Because I know a lot of guys who would say, I'm all alone here. I alone am left. So let's pray for leaders. Leadership is lonely. That's number four. Number five, idols are dumb and stupid. Like those are particular words. Chose them carefully. Idols are dumb and stupid. One thing that consistently cracks me up is when God, through his word, talks trash about idols so-called gods. And this, th- there's a lot of this. And I hope, I hope you can like laugh about this. God talks trash through Elijah here and through other men in the scriptures about idols. Elijah is hilarious as he does it. Imagine the scene. I mean, he's got 450 at least, arguably 850 guys leaping around, screaming out, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. And Elijah, all alone, is off to the side saying, uh, maybe louder, he's hard of hearing. Uh, maybe he's on vacation because God's do that in your world. My God doesn't. He never takes vacation. Oh, maybe he's asleep. Louder, wake him up. My God never sleeps, right? And the best one, and it's there, it's, it's clear. He, he says... Maybe he's in the bathroom. Like when it's, when it's brought into English, it says maybe he's turned aside. That's what it means. It's, a, it's an idiom. 
<laughs> there are other idioms we could use, like if we, were, if we were bringing it into the vernacular. There are idioms that we use today for that. Maybe he's in the bathroom. That's gold. As 850 guys are crying out to a false god, Elijah says he's probably in the bathroom. Not exactly politically correct, huh? Look at Isaiah chapter 44 with me. Isaiah 44 is like a, there's a lot of this in Isaiah 44. Just the futility of idolatry. But one little section gets my attention when he says, Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. Do do you get the sarcasm there? He's like, this is only half the tree that you cut down. The other half you roasted or roast on it. And this half is your God who will deliver you. You made food with the other half. This is crazy talk. Psalm 135 is another one. It says, The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Even in a song, we make fun of the idols. And Jeremiah 10, 33 through 11 is another great spot. It says, For the custom of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Then here's the turn. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due from among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms. There is none like you. The refrain of the scene with the prophets of Baal calling out was, there was no voice. There was no answer. There was no fire. No one paid attention. Why? Because Baal is nothing. Baal is no one. And yet Elijah simply, quietly says, Lord, show them. Because there's no one like him. And he proves it over and over. There's another great story that I read not too long ago um, in 1 Samuel 4 and 5 uh, when the Philistines come and there's a battle and uh, the, the ark ends up getting taken by the Philistines. Um, it's a bad day if you're an Israelite. The ark is taken. But the Philistines take it back to the temple of their pagan god, Dagon. And they put the, temp- they put the ark of the covenant in the temple of Dagon by the statue of Dagon. And the next morning, they come in and Dagon is on his face before the ark of God. That's great. So what do you do if you're a follower of Dagon? Prop him up. We can't have our God on his face before the symbol of the God of Israel. 
So they prop him up. The next morning they come in, and guess what? He's on the ground again. This time his head fell off. Listen, here's my point, and we're going to get a chance to do this in a minute. We need to figure out how to do this. We need to figure out how to have such confidence and boastfulness in our God that these other gods are seen as empty, futile, deaf, blind, unable to speak, unable to move, unable to do anything, blocks of wood. And I'm not talking just about taking pot shots at other faiths or other beliefs. I'm talking about seeing our God as he is. We're going to sing in a minute. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. And we believe that. And he has proven that. He has proven it over and over and over. Let me, let me give you a, 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 a real world example uh, of this. You remember on the playground when we were kids, we would argue about whose dad was stronger? Did you do this? And Joe Jackson's got a whole series of jokes about this that are gold. I won't tell any of them today. But like the argument between little kids about how my, my, dad, my dad can beat up your dad. You know who is glorified in that? Dad. Like I want to overhear my kids telling some other kids, my dad could take you. I would, I would be like, I don't know, but I'm glad you think so. <laughs> but listen, we, we, our dad can take everybody. And he does. He has. And he will. In the end, he will. So let's praise him like that. Let's not be afraid to say that. Let's not be afraid maybe to say to one of our friends who is serving the world and all the worldly stuff, say, that, that's not going to get you anywhere. That's pathetic. Let me tell you about the greatness of my God. Don't just say it's pathetic. <laughs> Don't just say your thing is pathetic. Talk about the greatness of our God. It's, it's good to say our God is greater, our God is stronger than any other. He's the greatest and the strongest. So here's, here's the challenge, the singular application, and then we'll sing. How long will you waffle? How long will you sit on the fence? How long will you hesitate between two opinions the Lord is God then serve him and if something else is God serve it but I'm telling you the Lord has proven that he is God not by sending fire that consumed rocks but by sending his son to live the life we cannot live to die the death that we deserve to rise victorious over sin and death and evil he has proven that he is God he is the Lord follow him to say no is damnable. To say maybe later I will follow him, that's rejection as well. So I'm calling, commanding, begging, repent and believe today. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for showing us your greatness in the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the way you have worked and redeemed us we want to pray for men and women and boys and girls who are wavering today. They are hesitating between two opinions. They're sitting on the fence. I pray today they will not just hear the preacher calling for repentance and faith. 
but they will hear you calling their name, giving them faith, giving them repentance, and bringing them to life. I pray that many in this room would fall on their faces even now, exclaiming, the Lord, he is God. We want to respond rightly in worshiping you now. Help us. Help us to sing with our hearts, from our hearts, because you're worthy. In Christ's name we pray.